frustrating case the case of Zodiac Killer is. Um, and what a wonderful depiction of that in film um, because it's a long film. I don't know how long it is, but halfway through you're like, they got to get this guy. They're going to get this guy, surely. You've spent so much time and so much effort and there's so many people and such terror. And then um, to, to not have a, an answer on it nailed down, you can just feel the frustration about uh, this case um, oozing through the investigators. It's a puzzle and um, one of those situations where you can tell what kind of killer you're dealing with, even though you don't know who he is, I think. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, because he's bold and brave enough, you know, to deal with the police under his Zodiac guise, he's talking <laughs> them sending clues and leaving messages and this kind of stuff but he's not man enough to to you know to do more than that to just to tease it out and and reveal himself and own up to his crimes it's really um kind of cowardly it reminds me of btk he was toying with the police and leaving clues and and pretending to be this big bold amazing killer and all this and i you know i am a god and 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 then you when you find it find out who he is you find out he's a little tiny man you know, <laughs> <laughs> like that's the kind of guy we're dealing with here with the with the zodiac killer welcome to zodiac chronicle a 24-part investigation into david finch's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece zodiac adapted from Robert Graysmith's best-selling novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt. The film, of course, stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., Mark Ruffalo, and one of today's guests, the incredible and versatile Donald Logue. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Our introduction today was by New York Times best-selling author, James Patterson collaborator, Ned Kelly award winner, Australia's premier crime writer, Candace Fox. Before we dive into the theme of the week and the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and rate and review the show wherever you're listening. If you have a few extra bucks and you enjoy what we do, the links to our Patreon, which drops uncut Zodiac Sessions interviews with guests from the show, and to our merchandise from Brianna Ashby and Amy Reid are in the description. Joining me today to discuss Z's red rag to the bulls of the SFPD and the threat that will create waves of hysteria throughout California and the USA through the epicenter of San Francisco are Zodiac's Ken Nalo himself, Donald Logue. The Budweiser commercial with David Fincher was the thing that actually kind of released me from ever having to be a janitor or telemarketing or do. <laughs> it was the job that set me free, right, onto this. So it was it was massive. Film critic on sabbatical with bylines at RogerEbert.com and the Metaplex. My favorite Chicagoan, besides Michael Mann, Brennan Hodges. And it's a movie that almost changes with you over time as well. So there's a lot in there that I think makes it logical in a way to really blow up and make all these top of the decade lists or make all the now top of the century so far lists. And returning, the screenwriter of Zodiac, James Vanderbilt, film critic and editor-at-large of Empire Magazine UK, co-host of the Empire podcast and author of the now-released Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, Helen O'Hara, film critic of The Ringer and Cinemascope, author of essential movie books, The Coen Brothers. This book really ties the films together. And the recently released Paul Thomas Anderson Masterworks, Adam Naiman, film critic at Film School Rejects, Anna Swanson, and the dynamic duo behind the B-Side podcast, post-production wrangler and writer at Film Stage, Connor O'Donnell, and co-founder of the Film Stage, Dan Mecca. This is the sixth episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Aquarius Part 2. Tosky, Armstrong, and the SFPD and the Chronicle are compelled to publish Z's elaborate threats that essentially suffocate their investigation. So the theme for this episode is notorious. Before we dive in to the events and the latest interactions between Zodiac and the press, he's Adam Naiman on one of those questions we continue to ask ourselves. And the past in Zodiac seems to just vanish mm. you know you can recreate you can remember you can recombine he can even show the things happening to us and then everything just kind of recedes into these nightscapes and it's just gone 
And there's so many scenes in this movie that feel like dreams in that way. It's not a dreamy movie. It's a super lucid, sober movie. Yeah. But like the scene with the girl with Ioni Sky out on the highway is like a dream because it's like, well, where does that start and where does that end? Yes. Where did anybody go? I mean, where did the guy in the car drive off to? When he shoots the guy in the cab, where does he go? Yeah. You know, the movie shows you everything except for like entrances and exits. The movie shows you everything except where people go. I mean, even in seven, they go back to his house. Yes. You know, he goes out to get groceries and he comes home. You're watching this movie and you're like, who, not only who's this person, like, where could he possibly live? Where could he possibly go? What could he possibly be doing when he's not doing the things we see him doing? They go to Arthur Lee Allen's trailer and we look at that and we go, yeah, that's probably the place the Zodiac would live, or is that a movie cliche for us? He's got animals in cages. It looks like a fucking terrifying place, but is that is that a cliche? Is a basement in California a cliche, you know? What follows is a CBS News broadcast that originally aired on October 20, 1969. Search goes on in San Francisco for the man known as the Zodiac Killer. The elements involved today included psychiatrists, astrologists, and police guards for school buses. Terry Drinkwater reports. School children are nice targets. I shall wipe out a school bus some morning, shoot out the tires, and then pick off the kiddies as they come bounding out. That was the threat of the Zodiac Killer. Now, every day, police cars follow the buses which would be likely targets. Officers armed with shotguns take the threat seriously. The psychotic killer has already murdered five. One at a lover's lane near a lake just north of San Francisco three others in nearby Vallejo. The latest, a taxi driver in San Francisco. The Zodiac Killer seems to crave publicity. He sent letters and cryptograms to newspapers and the police, recounting his crimes, threatening more murders, and making Bay Area residents very edgy. In his violent movements, or rather the violent, violent periods that he has been in, uh, he's an absolutely ruthless, completely merciless, killer he calmly goes about his business of uh, in one case telephoning the police and another tearing a strip off the off the shirt of the dead body of the immediately killed victim um he doesn't get great excitement over it. he he just uh, he thinks killing is is just killing so somebody like that is going to be a very serious problem for us from witnesses, there are two generally similar composite drawings. He's around 30, reddish hair, 5 feet 10, crew cut, but not much more than that is known. Today, a meeting of lawmen and psychiatrists from all over the Bay Area. They are weighing advice from astrologers on the theory that perhaps the killer who calls himself the Zodiac may be planning his next victim based on astrological signs. Terry Drinkwater, CBS News, San Francisco. When the Zodiac named that his next target to be school children and significantly escalated his own terror threat, it not only reverberated through the city of San Francisco, it reverberated into pop culture too. Here's a clip ripped directly from Dirty Harry. And paired with this ABS News broadcast and the scene you're going to listen to today, it's going to be like deja vu. To the city of San Francisco, you have double-crossed me for the last time. Warning you to have my $200,000 in a jet airplane ready and waiting. I will call mayor's office at 1 o'clock and tell you about the hostages, who I will be happy to kill if you don't do exactly what I say, Scorpio. Well, you better have somebody standing by. It could be a false alarm, but don't count on it. Mr. Mayor, there's a call for you on line two. I think it's the one you've been waiting for. This is the mayor. I've got seven kids from the Park Street School. All right, now listen. I got the bus, and I've got... Come on, honey, now back in the bus. That's it, girl. Back in the bus. And I've got the bus driver. Here's screenwriter James Vanderbilt on Zodiac as the first kind of serial killer influencer. The thing the Zodiac did that was so sort of brilliant's the wrong way to put it, but he he branded himself. He weaponized branding in order to make himself important. You know, his... His letter says this must appear on the front page of the newspaper, right? He, <laughs> he wants to be 
front page news. And he creates a symbol to go with his name so that when you see this symbol, the same way you would brand a product, he was branding himself and putting himself out there. And I think that's one of the, it was, he, he made himself news ready. You know what I mean? And and he's 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 sending codes and doing rhymes and he's doing everything to say, look at me, look at me, look at me, pay attention to me. I'm dangerous, I'm important. And I think that's why also later in the film, we wanted to have Paul Avery say, this guy's killed like five or six people. Like it's not, I mean, it's not, it's tragedy, but like more people die in the East Bay commute. So there was a little bit of, he made himself this media sensation with the help of the media, because it's old papers, you know? And and still hangs over us. Listen, I mean, I I opened Twitter today and Zodiac Killer was trending. I mean, it's, it's you know what I mean? It's that, 2021. It's 2021. We do have Ted Cruz to thank. We do have Ted Cruz, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's, 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 I, I haven't thought about how weird it is for you, but it's even weird for me. Oh, it's, it's like so many crazy. days I open it back up and and it's like uh, Zodiac um, Zodiac's trending. I'm like, what? Why yep. is it? Why is the Zodiac trending this morning? Oh, did the show? Oh no, it's just Ted Cruz again. That's yeah. Okay. No, I'm That's like, what is Ted Cruz doing this morning? But yeah, it's um. But it is the fact that it's that's that. He, I mean, he was in dialogue with pop culture from the beginning, um, and and wanted to be a part of it and wanted to be. I mean, you know, I mean. He he made a costume for himself. Like that's like that's like a cosplaying. You know, he's, he's cosplaying as a murderer. Like you know, the son of Sam didn't put on a suit of armor. Like so, it it all of that was 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 we talked about and was sort of very intentional. In the following scenes, there's such a dynamic mixture of moods, settings, and feelings that seem to amplify the human energy. We begin in the newsroom. Candy Clark plays Carol Fisher, the secretary. Ms. Clark's resume includes The Man Who Fell to Earth, Blue Thunder, and American Graffiti. It's kind of fitting for the woman who once occupied spaces like the diner at the beginning of the film to recognize Z, even if it's just that familiar handwriting. A thematic constant in Zodiac is embracing that critical lens on the very concept of the American ideal or American exceptionalism. This beacon, a totem of fortunes to be made, Golden Gate Bridge, San Francisco, is a kind of nightmare chakra. Carol knows it's our guy. The bloody rag is the confirmation of the kill. In the Zodiac novel, Graysmith called Carol a long-suffering letters to the editor person who was just always in the midst of it. Her bellow ripples through the faces of the hardened and cynical journalists in the newsroom, especially Graysmith. The office stops. The whole gloriously recreated chronicle floor turns to face the source of the shriek. This is the Zodiac speaking. I am the murderer of the taxi driver over by Washington Street and Maple Street last night. To prove this here is a bloodstained piece of his shirt. I am the same man. Tosky and Armstrong exit their car with a voiceover of Robert Downey Jr.'s Avery reading the latest letter. Another stellar matte painting, a new lighting composition. This may be another of the film's great achievements. The recreation of this period San Francisco remains the absolute gold standard. As we hear the voice of Avery reading the latest communique, we begin to anticipate the coming together of the three, or four if you include Anthony Edwards, leads of the film, finally occupying the same space. In the seamless merge between Avery's narration and Tosky and Armstrong's appraisal of the letter, Ruffalo, Robert Downey Jr., Gyllenhaal are all in the frame together. They are coordinated. The invisible clock of the movie shows how vital their role is to the success or failure of this investigation. Man who did in the people in the North Bay area. The SF police could have caught me last night if they had searched the park properly instead of holding road races with their motorcycles. Gentlemen. Dead. Paul? Where's his shirt? Right there, boss. There's your rag the kids talked about. So you got in the front seat to tear up a piece of the shirt? Is this uh, on the record? What do you think? It confirms the Vallejo and Napa killings. Gets worse. I thought it'd be a great time to interject a bit of chat with my friend Brendan Hodges. Will we talk about the tuning fork nature of this moment in time and this moment in the film? I, I love that you said tuning fork because I think that's so absolutely right. And again, you can see the comparison to the JFK assassination, where all of these stars somehow aligned, right? And um, that never will again, and almost couldn't have at the time. And what strikes me about 
all, uh, movies like All the President's Men and Zero Dark Thirty and also Zodiac is that these are movies that are finding these critical points in time where the historical event itself is almost a metaphor or a symbol for that era or cultural mindset and speaks to the human condition in a way that if you got you know a think tank of the world's greatest fiction writers to come up with the perfect scenario that could speak to certain things they couldn't come up with something as uncanny but also compelling as the things that zero dark 30 all the president's men and zodiac zero in on all of these confluence these cascading factors and these historical forces that collide and all of those different things just erupting at once as you say it's almost as though like it's hyper real and it, like real life begins to take on a weirdly fictional quality because it's almost like um you know taking all these things and putting a trying to collect all of it and reduce it to the tip of a needle where <laughs> all of that stuff fits in one moment in time and yet it does yeah and i think that zodiac does that so well and i think part of what lets it achieve that is the fact that it's so ensembleized because we get so many points of view into how this went down i love that it takes the time to follow the what how the street cops feel i love that it takes the time to see how the cops a little out of the loop in vallejo feel and the kind of uh, the bureaucratic nightmare of the like trying to liaison between all these different agencies and these scenes that don't hurry they're not rushed and you get to see how people feel about it and i think that there's this feeling of entropy yeah throughout all of zodiac and i think that one of the master strokes of it is that all these characters that you see for maybe 60 90 seconds of screen time many of them show up at the end in the last hour when robert graysmith is driving all of them crazy to you know try to shake loose some additional truths to try to understand things and sometimes he can and sometimes he can't all the way to the point where you know he's stuck in an apartment or a home that his family has vacated and he's just surrounded by boxes of information facts etc it's not very different from the informational assault of our daily lives where we can't figure out what's real or what's not and i think that the fact that the movie juggles a very specific point of view at one time with this ensemble gives us that scale of an era where we can see things in a personal way but we also feel as though we stepped into so many different people's shoes in the course of an almost three hour long movie that when you finish watching zodiac you feel as though you were there yes and not only do you feel like you were there, what I think is so uncanny is Zodiac equally speaks so eloquently to the now. And the way it somehow does both is a hat trick I still haven't quite figured out. <laughs> I, I think that it feels so urgent and current in that way because what it says about humanity and society and the media and the way that we deify what is unknowable and scary is so profound uh, particularly because the zodiac himself is anonymous you know the zodiac is kind of like batman <laughs> he could be anybody <laughs> you know that's the allure that's why people love zodiac and i loved listening to your other zodiac episodes i forget which guest said it but there was that conversation about how they don't like true crime and but they love zodiac and then you chimed in you were like it's weird you say that it's exactly the same thing with me and i think part of that is because he wasn't caught 
and the breadth of explanation of what went down and how is so compelling. And I think we feel weirdly comforted by knowing that there's this situation that we can never have answers to because none of us have answers to anything anymore. (laughs) So it's like, I feel seen. I'm with all these other people who also don't know anything about what's happening. Gets worse. Robert, you have a deadline? What does he mean it gets worse? Read the last part. School children make nice targets. I think I shall wipe out the school bus some morning, just shoot out the front tire, and then pick off the kiddies as they come bouncing out. Jesus Christ, who's got school buses? Department of Transportation? School board. Toski and Armstrong are immediately attempting to contend with and navigate the jurisdictional bramble. The scene sings. The hierarchy of all of the relationships that precede Zodiac are on show. There's trust, there's candor, details on and off the record. In this ever so brief window of the movie, it's like a desperate gasp for air after an underwater deep dive. There's hope for cooperation, for collaboration, and even at times, the actors in the scene moving out of each other's way. But it also solidifies the conditions that layer the mystery. I'm going to need elimination prints from your staff. Is anyone here that didn't touch this letter? My way back to my desk. I have phones if you want. You need to get matches on blood and fabric. I'll call Napa and Vallejo to get the letters up to Sherwood and Sacramento. Hey, just one thing. Is it true they got a print off the cab? Yeah, they got a partial in blood. But that is not for publication. Hey, hey, come on. Hey, it's me. Did he say they got a print? Robert Downey Jr. as Avery here is so wonderful. Is it sincere or cynical? Nonetheless, whatever it is, media and law enforcement cooperation for public safety to stop any further panic to jeopardize the rapidly escalating situation here makes total sense. The relationship between Graysmith and Avery is growing too. Growing built largely on discussing the innermost details of the case. There's not any ego. It's fraternal. Hey, it's me. Did he say they got a print? Partial. Whoa. Here, where's his gun, my bullet? Uh, McQueen got that from Tosky. Does he think that Zodiac's gonna send another code? Because I think Zodiac's gonna send another code. Jesus, Harold can... Christ on rubber crutches, Bobby. What are you doing? You're doing that thing, the thing we discussed, the thing that I don't like. Starts with an L. Oh, looming. Yeah. Grayson tries to volley back with Paul's theatrical soundboarding, and eventually his presence inspires Avery's outstanding hyperverbal elaborate takedowns and explanation of like. looming oh, looming yeah in cooperation with sfpd we will run the zodiac letter without including the threat on school children we don't want to start a citywide panic so i'm asking all of you to please keep this confidential just go about your daily business there is a quandary though Thank you. who has the immediate burden of school-aged children Graysmith's exit from the Chronicle that afternoon is riding with new gravity. Pack your carrots and, and your celery and peanut butter, okay? Dad, you don't have to wait for me. I know. You know what? You know what? I'm gonna drive today, okay? okay. After the agony and discomfort of that failed bus drop-off, a new location is the Bureau of Criminal Identification and Investigation. Paul Thomas Anderson calls Philip Baker Hall one of the greatest American actors, and of course, he's part of this immense and phenomenal cast. Hall plays Sherwood Murrill, the chief examiner at the Office of Question Documents, a man with a petulant professionalism. He is examining the handwriting. Fincher rhymes, Graysmith's looming, with Tosky's presence alongside Marill. This is the moment where you see that they share urgency, focus, desperation for the puzzle of this case to be solved. His reprimand for not following protocol? Ejection. What's that? Similarities in the lowercase r's. 
And that? It is you waiting in the hall. If you speak again, I have to concentrate. Sorry. Sorry, Counsel speaking. There's similarities in the lowercase r's. Burning the midnight oil, Toski and Armstrong. Toski's innocuous repetition of the minor progress is taking a small victory. Bill sees right through it. What's sensational about the scene is the inevitability of the outcome. Armstrong's accepting perch on those wooden chairs in the halls starts to take on the properties of a gyre. We have to release the bus threat. It'll screw us. We're already screwed. We just went from routine cabbie shooting to mass murderer targets kids. They're willing this not to be the Zodiac, and yet, when Maril opens his door, his silence signals a life-consuming responsibility. The Zodiac Killer has come to San Francisco. Confirmation tonight from the San Francisco Police Department, and in his latest taunting letter, which takes credit for the murder of cab driver Paul Stein, the Zodiac has threatened to, quote, wipe out a school bus and pick off the kitties as they come bouncing out. Avery takes matters into his own hands. As the dwindling staff walk out the door, he toils at his typewriter, injecting inflammatory remarks designed to goad Z into an emotional response. He's wedging himself into the story with slurs about sexuality. It's mainly brazen and negligent and exactly what you'd expect. Here's Anna Swanson and then Helen O'Hara on the lure to make yourself a part of this story. I have to imagine every true crime podcast host or even just like every, you know, armchair detective, like that's what they want, right? Is that kind of, I mean, in a way, all three, you know, Graysmith, Avery, and Toski, they all get written into the story. Mm. Like Avery quite literally in, in, you know, reporting it, but Toski in kind of becoming notorious for working on it and uh, Graysmith writing the book on it. Like, I think it's, it's that kind of obsession, but it's also that... Um, insertion of the self into it where it's it's kind of not just it's not just enough to you know want to solve the case to want to know who it is but it's like Grace Smith says it's about standing there and looking at him and kind of putting yourself into it right and I think um, perhaps there's like a little bit of that interest in you know something morbid something macabre right like wanting to look at someone and know that they're a serial killer. Yeah. And wanting to have that personal affirmation, even if the courts can't confirm it, even if they can't get convicted, even if the cops will have stopped returning your calls, like to know that it's like such, it's such a driving force and it's such an understandable driving force, but it's also kind of terrifying when you actually really think about it. And I think it's just, you know, not everyone could be that person that sort of dedication but also just reckoning with the possibility of like are you talking yourself into this mm. are you believing this because you want an answer you know and and as much as i think the film makes a very compelling case for like the circumstantial evidence being um up against arthur lee allen like it's not a hundred percent right and and you know the movie can't purport to solve this any more than the book can any you know what i mean like like yes it can propose a theory but it's not it can't be proven and i think it really it really kind of forces you know everyone involved to kind of reckon with like how much are you content to just take this as an answer for yourself versus do you need that outside affirmation do you need that like toski sitting across from you telling you yeah that's right or do you need Arthur Lee Allen standing across from you and you know. I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it, in that in that respect to focus on the journalists involved and what the hell goes through their heads when this happens, you know? Yeah. And I thought I, that was that's a really interesting part of the Robert Downey Jr.'s character. Like and the fact that he does kind of go off for See, the thing is, isn't it, when he when he goes off and tries to basically start investigating himself and going on TV on his own in his own right and stuff it's on one hand it looks like certainly to Tosky it looks like a search for personal glory it looks like he's just gonna you know he's looking to be the hero here and 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 draw the attention no matter what's good for the case or not but I think it's a little bit more complicated for Avery himself because he's 
by that point, we see really feeling the pressure, really feeling the almost noose closing in on him, really feeling at personal risk. And so it seems more like the actions of a man who's worried about his own survival than the actions of a man who's just out for the big scoop. Yeah, and and you would imagine they've had to, and this is the, the great quandary that we talk about in a couple of the early episodes is you're right on the precipice where the media has to make a decision and they have made the decision that they're going to run the cipher on page four and they believe in the the trust of their circulation that they're going to tell people what's most important they're doing the due diligence to publish it because they don't want any lives to be lost but they're going to do what they got to do but avery would have had to be a mouthpiece for a psychopath you just got to write his shit every day yeah and you know people have wondered why some journalists have been combative with someone like trump or people like boris johnson or people like you know australian prime minister scott Mm -hmm. morrison and it's like well, maybe if you have to be a mouthpiece for these people who you fundamentally disagree with or you think that are just like lunatics, you're going to start you're going to start uh, editorializing, shall we say, some of but your like, commentary because it's like it's, yeah. I can't I can't just keep being their mouthpiece. I can't just keep saying this stuff to the public because it stops being about the public interest, it's in his interest. It's less well, about this the public, is it. it's his interest. Exactly. And this is, I genuinely think, I think, I think a bit of a crisis of modern journalism, which is that you have leaders like some of the ones you mentioned, um, who habitually, routinely, repeatedly tell outright lies. Like yes. they are not just mistakes. They are not just generalities. They are fundamental untruths. And they keep repeating them over and over again. And it is not the job of the press to repeat those lies. It is the job of of the press to report that they were said and that they were lies. And I don't even think that's editorializing. I think that's reporting. So, and I think we're in a real crisis because the job of the press has been drawn too narrowly to say, you know, well, he said it, so therefore we have to report that he said it. No, you have to report that he said it and that it is a lie. It's the underside of the American dream, this kind of thing as well. I think that's another reason that these kind of stories are as, as popular as they are. And and it, and it definitely goes to the Manson family yes. um, times as well. Like it's that hyper, hyper, it's that kind of optimistic surge of people to the West Coast. Everybody's looking for the American dream and, and like to a greater extent in California than maybe anywhere else. Tarski's worst fears are realized. The case is swamped. As we progress in the film and the cast blooms, a roster of iconic 90s actors find ways to both faithfully inhabit the real people that they're portraying in the film while maintaining their familiarity from 90s pop culture artifacts like bombastic beer commercials, network TV behemoths, and partners to amphibious adolescent mutants. Press conference is at four. You gotta give him something. Um, we're coordinating with the school board and we expect to break in the case very soon. What do we really got? We're swamped. And they can't get anyone on the tip line. They call the switchboard and keep getting put through. You got any hard suspects? About uh, 90 an hour. I'm up to around 500. Why can't you narrow it down? I, I would love to if I could get out of this chicken. Homicide, please hold. Yeah, hold, please. We're gonna need to tell him we got the entire force on that. How many men can you give me? Well, right now, it's you and Bill, and Monday's a school day. Yeah, I know, Chief. I have three daughters of my own. Yeah, I know. Where's, where's Armstrong? He's on the phone flail. We're playing catch-up, Jack. I'd like to set up a Armstrong meeting. begins the most glorious game of phone tag, portrays the interdepartmental chaos in a way that forces you to laugh. Every other response is despair. The people he's bouncing off of are one, the deeply underrated Elias Codius, who plays Sergeant Jack Mullinax, Casey Jones himself, and the sublime and versatile Donald Logue, who plays Captain Ken Nalo, who we're going to hear from. But before we do, here's Conor O'Donnell and Dan Mecca arguing that this scene, and maybe Mr. Logue's line delivery as Ken Nalo, is perhaps the best of the film. And I think Downey Jr., it's so funny because at this point he needed to make these movies, so his, his whole career was different, so he would have done that. I mean, 
and I do not know. Can Robert you imagine Downey any director now going more than ten takes for Downey ever? I would posit yeah. you could not pay Downey Jr. to make another Fincher movie. No way, because he'd be like, no way. Can I? Like, you, you read about him, and look, he does good work. You read about him on the Marvel set. He's like, it's a it's a bet with the crew to see if he can get the take in one. Like yeah. literally, like which is fine. He does. He's a pro. It's, that's great. But it's like that alone alone is the difference. And he's like he was a pro. And he was a pro in the Zodiac set. And obviously, Gyllenhaal had other agendas and he was a younger actor and everything. So I think it's funny. You're totally right, Connor. Like, when this, by the time this movie came out, people were kind of like, that Fincher, I don't know about him. And then it was kind of like, oh, what is this, like seven, but a little bit more personal? Like, okay. And then, and then, you know, obviously, time heals all wounds. You go back and you go, like, oh, no, we were wrong about this, of course. And I think just to bring it back to like one scene we were talking about, maybe talking about, but obviously, we've covered other things, which, which is great. To me, what makes where you go from like where you're talking about Blake, like collateral to heat is um, all the tangential stuff is also perfect, which is yes. to say collateral. There's some stuff in it, for example, that doesn't quite work. Right. Like you're like, sure. oh, yeah, it's a great movie. But like that one part, like the Peter Berg character. Right. God bless right. Peter Berg. But it's like <laughs> who's the worst, like, the worst cop in the history. Peter Berg, who that like entire performance is like, where, where hey, Ru- like, yeah. where like Ruffalo is the, one of the coolest and weirdest and like just like the best great choices. Fun. You're like great choices, fun. choices, yeah. choices, Ruffalo. Yes. Give me. Yeah. And Peter Berg's just like, what's today? Is this a crime scene? Is, this a, is there a body? Like, you're like, yes, dude, it, stop it. Come it on. clearly is. Come on, Peter Berg. Are you, what are you, a union rep, dude? Come on. And so, and so he, so, so uh, I'm pro union, but that, that joke is sitting right there. And so, so, uh, but no, my point is like, so there you have that. But yes. then in this movie, one of my favorite sequences we were talking about is when uh, Elias Cotes, Donald Logue, uh, Anthony Edwards, they're all on the phone. They're all, you know, one works for Vallejo, one works for the other place, you know, one, you know, and they're, you realize that all the murders are in these different counties and it's a disaster of like municipalities and, and bullshit. And Donald Logue is talking with Anthony Edwards and, you know, all really should have been on, on the footprint, da 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 da. And um, then, then, um, Anthony Edwards follows up with the the Windwalker boot thing, yeah. And he's like, "Oh, did they narrow it down in Vallejo?" And Donald Logue's like, "I don't know. I don't work in Vallejo. I work." It here. is it's, that yeah. line. I don't want to say yeah. it's the best line in the movie. It's, it's so good, though. But it's, it's really no, close. It's, 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 it's so good. There's a lot of. I mean, this is. I'm glad you got us here, Dan, because I think it does go back to something I mentioned before, which is like. literally every aspect of this movie is is so it's one of well done it's so well done and and it's and 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 that scene is a kind of like a very indicative no small performances right like even even i'm gonna give you two i'm gonna give you two words connor while you just fill this out two words sure bud court (laughs) in heat one of the greatest yeah. no, fucking it's, assholes. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. It's very that has it's very, ever existed. That diner me. scene, you the should do- t- that that diner scene should be taught in film classes because yeah. it is that is the he doesn't even he doesn't even he doesn't even know that he's in frame and most of it he's not. You can't even see his mouth moving. Like I'm moving yeah. on the camera. He's like and, in the far farthest reaches of frame, and there is beautiful Dennis Haysbert. It, they're right in the frame like and you're staring at this guy and he's just so casually completely exploitative and right. like that those people in those movies is where it's absolutely outlandish yeah. like you just it's go, the same thing as like tom noonan popping up in heat for you know one scene and it's all out there you just and and, it, and 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 this <laughs> and this movie though like yeah like donald Logue being able to deliver a line like that impeccably you're like oh i know exactly who this guy is and he comes back and he's like and but and all of those guys like i another thing i want to bring up briefly because i feel like this is a dude who never gets enough cred but elias Coteus oh my god is One of so my good in this ever, movie ever. And, yeah and he's i feel like he's just a character actor who like never owner owner of the best thin red line performance without oh yeah, yeah yeah it's the, it's which, the best performance which, in that movie. which you gentlemen may know was Tom Sizemore's original part. I know, which which you talked about in yes. your episode. Which I literally was like, now Sizemore's great, obviously, as a performer, but like that whole 
Cortez, you know, I will, yeah. you know, I will not when he, when he doesn't and even take the si- and, even Sizemore, mean, and even Sizemore going, oh, that like Elias Cortez is one of his favorite performances too. He was just like, oh, he's, he's great. Like, yeah, truly, like, truly, and truly. he compared him to De Niro. He's like him and Bobby share the same truly energy. Yeah. Um, I mean, outside of even obviously looking very similar, but um, but he like all of those guys. I feel like it's so. It's great because it's this kind of like, uh, you know, you you get, and again, it's the structure of the movie, but you get introduced to all of them amidst this, this sort of rapid fire chaos of these murders. And then they all kind of come back as these like wise pillars of information that Hall can bounce off of, right? And it's, and it's, and there's like a comfort to when you see them again, like in the, in the sort of the final moments of the movie, when he's banging on the door to the Vallejo precinct and he just needs to get in just to confirm the one sort of bit of information after he's talked to Clay Duvall to like really kind of lock it all in. And Molinax shows up like, you know, when you think nobody's there after the night watchman has told him to go away basically. And it's just like a comfort. You're like, Oh God, thank God. And then like, and he's standing but, there with his mug of coffee waiting yes, while Grace Smith's just it, like you're pouring in the rain. And, it, and he's just standing there like, really Robert? Like yeah. really? And he does this, he this does this straight. thing. He does this thing where as he's walking up to the door to let him in, he kind of clenches his fist and just sort of like pumps it a couple times as if he sees like saying to himself like this, fucking guy like it's like and it's just this little tiny thing that's there and you just again you like you know exactly who that dude is um and it's it, it's the kind of thing that permeates the whole movie with every single character where's where's armstrong he's on the phone flail we're playing catch-up jack i'd like to set up a meeting with your survivor michael michelle i can't he skipped town the only guy who's seen Zodiac without a mask is missing. When he was still in the hospital, we could show him lineups all day long. As soon as he got out, he split. Really? Why? I don't think he wanted to have anything to do with this. Can you send us everything that you have? Well, the road goes both ways. Now, we need that print. You lifted from the cab and should have been in on the handwriting. I apologize. Things have been moving fast. Who should I talk to in Napa so we can coordinate? Talk to Ken Narlo. We really should have been in on the handwriting. I apologize. You know, things have been moving fast. Listen, we're gonna need your scene photos. Can't help you. Ken, I don't want to get into a jurisdictional thing. Here. No, 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 no. We didn't have a crime scene. The ranger that found the kids literally swept everything into a picnic blanket. All we have are the Windwalker prints. The what? Boot prints to and from the crime scene were made by size 10 and a half wing walkers. Military style boots sold only at military PXs designed to walk on the wings of planes. And you can't buy at a PX without a military ID, so our suspect could be... Military? Did you guys narrow your list off of this? Yeah. Did Vallejo? I don't know. I don't work in Vallejo. I work here. And now the incredible Donalogue remembering his time working on Zodiac. I was cast in Zodiac, and the weird thing was, and and I have to say this, because at a screening later, Ken Narlo came up to me and, you know, he was moved by reliving the whole thing. And he said one thing, though, he said, I was I don't mean to sound vain, but I prided myself on being incredibly physically fit all through <laughs> my, you know, and I felt bad because and it was, I think, actually something David was pushing me to do. I don't know what I was doing, all the jobs that were happening around the time we did um, Zodiac. But anyway, so I was cast in it and then we started we started filming and anyone who's worked with David and I'm sure they've told you on this podcast, um, you know, he's his own, he does his own thing. He does a million takes, he, he pushes it hard. Anthony Edwards is a dear friend of mine. I've known him for, you know, most of these people, including Downey Jr. who I met through David Blaine, the magician, um, years ago, and I had a wild night with Robert Downey Jr. in New York that he does not remember because <laughs> it was back in those days, you know. But um, I knew, you know, we kind of all know each other from our work or around the block or or just running into people at auditions, etc. So um, I was, and of course, Elias Cateus, who is Vallejo, as mm. we're getting into, you know, because. Um, He's been a friend of mine since I started. And 
so when when I come into the movie and I'm like I don't know you'll have to I'm not Vallejo you'll have to ask Vallejo and, it's, <laughs> and I have to say that the casting director David's casting director is a woman named Lorraine Mayfield yes and Lorraine is a genius and I love her to death and um, her son is a dear friend of mine and he was a grip on the first movie I ever directed Sabin and Sabin Mayfield's his name and Larray really puts together these dynamite worlds and um, she doesn't cast a lot of stuff she just casts the best stuff you know she has that that eye and I have to say that cast I, Fincher on Benjamin Button I know that there was some weird thing where David was in New Orleans and they were doing this movie and they had cast someone to do a line and I can't remember what line it was or have to go back I, I and revisit it. But they couldn't get that line. They tried a bunch of different people. It was just a single line. And so he flew my sister out from Los Angeles to do it. And that's the level of precision. And I will tell you this too, when we were gonna do the Dogtown and Z Boys, we spent a week rehearsing with these skaters. They they brought in these incredible Tony Trujillo and all these professional um, skateboarders to play to play the old Z Boys uh, team. And then um, like Tony Alva and those guys and Jay Adams. And um, David wanted it to be where it's long lens, wireless mics, and just what he wants you is to forget that you're acting and that forget that you're, I mean, I think that's what the, all the take after take after take, he wants that artifice of being aware of where the camera is or what my light is or all, any of that BS away from you. And one thing that they do, and I hope you get to talk to, and I can't remember the name of the props, um, the property master and the set decorator and the production designer. But if you were, I remember one day we were joking about something and it happens over the course of a 14, 16 hour day filming. You're joking about stuff. You're just cutting it up with the guys. And I remember looking in the desk, the drawer of the desk that I was sitting in and there was a manila um, uh, folder and I opened it up and there were these brutal, there were these brutal, these photographs of one of the crime scenes. And that's what David wants. He wants you to go 50 layers deep in your desk and on any other, you know, on Gotham, all those things, you just have these, you know, you have these weird, you have these, and first of all, um, this is going to terrify everybody, but I'll go through stuff on Gotham, like whatever the folders on my cop desk is. And the contents are a lot of times medical records that they sell in bulk to te to productions. Yes. And so yeah. you're going through, you're getting people's medical history, their social security numbers, <laughs> all that stuff that they promise you is HIPAA, you know, and, <laughs> and shredded or never to be seen BS. They sell it. And so, but for David, there's none of that. Everything, any, anything that's part of that set in a drawer tucked away is, um, has some kind of bearing on the story that you're telling and it writes your minds, you know, your, it puts you in that frame of mind. If you're starting to float, it just brings you right back. And that's what he wants. He wants you to just breathe and be as much as you can, even though it's artifice. I know we're filming. We, we, we memorize the lines in advance, et cetera, but he wants you as much as you can to organically just inhabit the space in the story. You're, you're talking about masters, Michael Mann and David Fincher and, um, but Zodiac was, to me, the proudest. You know, so when you're an actor or whatever, which is also such a strange profession, and I get it, and it's a kind of job where you either get your ass kissed too much or you get your you get totally dismissed for no reason. Like, you lose your human card because you're like, oh, you pretend for a living. You say things other people put in your mouth. You're like, oh, you think that we're incapable of articulating an idea? Go fuck yourself, you know? And then you get your back up and you go crazy. And um, But when I'm an, as an actor, when people, when you start, 
especially back then, people were like, what do you want to do? Can you, are you going to do comedy or drama? Are you going to do TV or movies? And you're young and you're like, am I crazily naive to, to want to do it all, you know, and uh, <laughs> it ain't going to happen. And I do think, and I have to thank Fincher for it, but I'm like, I've done sitcoms and I've done Zodiac. Yeah. And within those polls, like how blessed am I? And Zodiac is the one I use that it's the other pillar that I use to, to go to where it's, it's such a across the board. There isn't a moment in it that feels false. There isn't a moment in it where the, there isn't a performance in it that isn't phenomenal. I don't know. I don't work in Vallejo. I work here. Right. I'm going to need photos of those boot prints. Sure. Send me the handwriting. I thought question documents already did. Nope, Vallejo's got them, not us. All right. I'll have question documents. So forget it. I'll telefax it to you. We don't have telefax yet. Okay, I'll put it in the mail. We'll mail ours too. And call Molnix in Vallejo. Maybe he can get you a minion. Why don't you just get a photo off the original plastic hat? We'd have to wait because they don't have a fax. We don't have a fax either. Look, I'm just trying to get us coordinated. Have you called Solano Sheriff's Office? Why did I call Solano? Because a few kids that got killed last Christmas were Solano's. I thought they were Vallejo. No, they were over the county line, so you're going to need to coordinate with them too. Okay. And here are some final thoughts from screenwriter James Vanderbilt. I don't want to speak to why he was attracted to it, but what I love about how he wanted to do it is he was just as interested in the newspaper piece of it as the police procedural. He wasn't he wasn't looking to make another series. He said he said, I don't want to make a serial killer movie. I want to make the last serial killer movie. Which I was like, oh, that's that's a cool line, like, <laughs> you know, and 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 very was very attracted to this idea of we're going to set this up for the first half hour, forty five minutes, with these these bursts of violence that happen, and you're sort of as an audience member programmed to okay, that's what the movie's going to be. That's what seven. Is. It's like you know, we're going down the list of sins, and we're going to get these kills, and we're going to get. And with Zodiac, it was, we start doing that and then we stop. Yeah. And the last two, two hours, call it our investigation. And no, you don't get to have that, that carrot again. No, you don't get to like that pleasure center of violence. That's not what we're doing here. We're, gonna, we're doing something different. And he was very into that. This concludes another episode of Zodiac Chronicle. Be sure to subscribe to everything we do on One Hit Meter Productions so you're the first to know about upcoming episodes. If you can't get enough, Unplugged Zodiac Sessions will be available exclusively on the One Heat Minute Productions Patreon. The link is in our show notes. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by Chris Duffy, the Duff of Los Espinas. Our companion I Am Not Avery Zodiac Chronicle stickers were done by the talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at at amy.read0310 at gmail.com until next time good bye